This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. You're listening to New Books and Geography, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host for today, Stentor Danielson, from the Department of Geography, Geology, and the Environment at Slippery Rock University. Today, I'll be talking to Jean-Thomas Tremblay, author of Breathing Aesthetics, published this year by Duke University Press. Dr. Tremblay, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. To start off, why don't you tell our listeners a bit about your background and how you came to write this book? Of course. Um... Well, I have a, a very promiscuous uh, educational background, uh, partly motivated by the fact that I wasn't sure in what direction I was going for, for a very long time. Um, when the time came to choose a major in undergraduate, uh, uh, in my undergraduate degree, I, I decided to go toward political science um, because I wanted to work in politics and I wanted to work in journalism. And I found myself gravitating toward theory courses, um, and especially theory courses where the there was a very capacious understanding of what a case or an example could be, um, and, and where aesthetic thinking and aesthetic um, uh, discussion were welcome. Um, and so when I moved toward graduate school for my MA and my PhD, I decided to go into the more aesthetic disciplines of, of literary studies, uh, film studies, and cultural studies. Um, so I did my PhD at the University of Chicago in English um, and in gender studies. I worked for years as an assistant professor at New Mexico State University. And as of recently, I'm an assistant professor of environmental humanities at York University in, in Toronto in Canada. Um, the book Breathing Aesthetics uh, was born out of a desire to uh, make this background cohere, although I don't think I was immediately present to that. Um, but I think I turned to breathing initially because it seemed like the right place to ask questions that were both aesthetic and political. Uh, aesthetic questions because breathing is a question of rhythm, is a question of duration, is a question of texture and density. When we think about breath in relation to poetry, for example, we're talking about the meter. In fiction, we might be talking about uh, the breathless free indirect discourse or the stream of consciousness. When we talk about breath in cinema, we might be thinking about questions of spectatorship. And then politics, um, because when we think about breathing, we're thinking about the uneven distribution of the conditions for living. Um, We're thinking about the fact that breathable air is not evenly or equally um, spread across all atmospheres and, and capacities. Um, breathing was also a place where I could indulge my interest in contradiction. Uh, when we think about breathing, we don't have to think of vitality and morbidity as being antithetical to one another. 
uh, also the self and the not self are strangely entangled insofar as breathing is about processing alterity, taking it in, processing it, and, and putting it out. Um, and when I started working on, on the breathing project first as a dissertation, um, it was around 2014. So against the backdrop of, of the murder of, of Eric Garner and the non-indictment of Daniel Penteleo, his assailant by a New York grand jury. Um, and it was a moment when I Can Breathe was emerging as a protest chant that uh, was in many cases an explicit reference to uh to France Fanon and a, a, a genealogy of, of black thought that um, took respiration very seriously for thinking about um, um, uh, the restrictions on life, but also the liberation of life. Um, and so, yes, yeah, so that's the context in which I started working on, on this project. Uh, when breath was starting to become an object of interest in its own right, as opposed to something that just fades into the background. Um, and so it was very uncanny to finish the book uh, during the COVID-19 pandemic, because suddenly there were op-eds about breathing and and everybody seemed to have an opinion about it, which would have been a, an absurd thing to say when I started working on the project. But but I think that the, the ways breath uh, physicalizes this uneven distribution of vitality has been uh, made especially spectacular over the past few years. Yeah, it's definitely a very timely subject to be taking on. So uh, in your introduction, you say that, quote, breathing traffics between the structural and the experiential. And I was wondering if you could elaborate on on that uh, that statement that I think captures kind of where you're coming from in the book. Yeah, Certainly. Um, well, one of the projects of the environmental humanities where where I, I live and spend a lot of my time is to think across scales and, and try to produce methods and insights that can travel across scales. So what that means is that in order to understand something like ecological deterioration, we need to be able to think at the subatomic level, but also at the planetary or even universal level, right? The level of the universe. Um, and breathing, I think, is very uh, useful as an object to help us think across scales because in breathing, we can see how bio and necropolitical processes get to be embodied and get to be experienced. So when we talk about biopolitics of necropolitics, we're talking about the management of life and the management of death at the population level. So one example of the biopolitics of, of respiration might be um, environmental inequalities or environmental racism. So the fact that uh, asthma patterns um, and, and um, uh, epidemiologies of, of asthma tend to abide by segregational divides. Um, uh, so there's a biopolitics of respiration here insofar as there's a, a, a management of uh, which members of populations have access to to care, which members of the population don't have access to care, which members of a population get to live close to or far from a toxic hazard, for example. Um, so, so these processes, right, are, are processes that demand um, uh, large-scale understanding or large-scale thinking. Um, and so thinking about the phenomenology of respiration, right? So the experience of respiration might be a way of 
getting to have a clearer sense of, of how these large-scale processes get to be um, uh, registered at the individual level and how they get to impact psychic life um, and everyday interactions. Um, so, uh, yeah, so breathing was a way of, of trying to move across scales uh, in relation to the project of, of the environmental humanities uh, more specifically. Yeah, and so since this is a, a work of environmental humanities, you're doing analysis of a, a whole bunch of different examples of art and film and music and poetry uh, that address this issue of breathing. So how did you go about choosing all of those, uh, all those works that you put together into this book? Um, that's a great question. Uh, I mean, I think I could answer it in reverse uh, by talking about a, a problem I'm, I'm currently having um, and how this new problem is an indication of how I went too far about trying to solve the problem of breathing aesthetics, which is I'm working on, on this new book called The Art of Environmental Inaction. Um, and it's impossible to have an art of inaction because to have an art of something, we need mediation. And to have mediation, there needs to have been a gesture. So none of the cases that make it into the archive can be actual examples of inaction. They have to be doing something else. For example, they're activating a process of unlearning. They're helping us unlearn our certainty about what an action is or our certainty that politics exists within the realm of action. I'd be happy to say more about, about this project later. Um, but the, the problem of the archive in this new project is that it has a, an N of zero, a population of zero for, it, for its possible archive of examples. Um, and the problem of breathing aesthetics is that it has an archive that is potentially infinite, right? Any piece of art, could be said to be related in some way or another to respiration insofar as it demands some kind of human intervention. And also insofar as our models for, for the artistic act and what motivates the artistic act are primarily respiratory. Um, the idea of inspiration has to do with breathing in the world in order to breathe out form or breathe out an artwork, a work of art. And so I had to establish very strict criteria for what, um, could be included within the archive of respiration or as exemplary of, of what I call the breathing aesthetics. And, and some of the criteria have to do with um, formal and, and content components, which is to say there needs to be an explicit discussion of respiration, but also an attempt to attune uh, formally to, to the rhythms and texture of, of respiration. But there also needs to be a clear engagement um, on the artist's part uh, with the sociopolitical processes that are mediated by respiration. Um, and, and the framework in which I'm, I'm looking at this is, is called the crisis in breathing, which is as close as I, I get to, to making uh, periodizing claims. What I call the crisis in breathing begins roughly around the 1970s, and it's marked by the intensified pollution, weaponization, and monetization of air and breath, uh, which, of course... Uh, these processes have uh, unevenly distributed uh, repercussions. And so in order to make it into the archive of breathing, which, you know, I don't know if it's an honor or, or uh, 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 a sign of, of, of misfortune on the artist's part, um, there needs to be this, this clear response to um, 
the conditions of the present as as being marked by a certain crisis in, in respiration. Um, so this is why a great deal of the archive is is interested in environmental collapse, um, because in works, for example, like C.A. Conrad's Ecopoetics, um, the destruction or deflagration of the world, of the planet, um, is producing certain conditions for breathing that, according to them, according to Conrad, a poet has to respond to when they are uh, uh, cultivating certain conditions for, for writing. Yeah, and you're, you're so right about how easily your archive of examples could just explode out of control here, because even just as I was reading it, I started like thinking about like wanting to pay attention to the breathing in any like you know film I watched or anything, and you know think about it in these terms because everybody's always breathing, um, uh -huh. <laughs> even though we don't like pay attention to it most of the time. Um, so yeah, so I, I I can see how that was you know a, a bit of a, a tough problem to get it down to a manageable scope for a single book. Um, so my next question I wanted to follow up on your mention of this idea of the crisis of breathing uh, and ask you to say a little bit more about these processes of pollution, weaponization, and monetization of our air. Yeah, absolutely. So it's a very imperfect periodization, as all periodizations are, um, but I do think it's useful one a useful one to think about processes of uh, intensification. So when we think about the weaponization of the air, I mean, Peter Sloterdijk would tell us that this goes back to the this goes back to the First World War and the use of mustard gas, for instance. Um, and there are, of course, antecedents of, of biological or chemical weapons that far precede the First World War. So even that, as a starting point, um, is uh, not uh, ironclad um, or not uh, immune to criticism. Um, but what happens in the 1970s is that uh, chemical weapons migrate. Um, they are outlawed for the purpose of war, which is to say for uses across state lines, for international uses, but then they become um, uh, legalized uh, for use by police forces in, quote, types and quantities proportional to um, the, the demands. Um, and so it's really unclear what counts as a, a proportional uh, type or quantity when it comes to disperse a crowd or um, uh, or, or attack a crowd, um, and 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 the ambiguity around um, around this kind of legal language has uh, made it possible for for police forces um, to to abuse uh, the substance and. In, in very spectacular ways and ways that have been highly mediatized. Um, and so what happens is this, you know, there's this moment when we think that chemical weapons are, are being outlawed, but actually what they're doing is they're pervading the fabric of everyday life um, in, in North America and in Europe, especially. Um, um, and, um, and, and also, you know, I, I should say as a, as a little asterisk that we would be wrong to think that, um, uses across state lines have not continued. Um, when I was based in, in New Mexico, in southern New Mexico, I was very interested in uh, news reports on the use of chemical weapons, tear gas specifically, 
uh, across state lines by Border Patrol agents in order to prevent uh, immigration or the passage of, of, of migrants. Um, this is a violation of international protocols, uh, international protocols that are very unevenly enforceable. Um, but it really shows how the rubric of the domestic can just grow and grow and grow in places like the borderland. Um, so that's for the weaponization of the air. Uh, when we talk about the monetization of the air, uh, well, one way of thinking about this is that having access to breathable air is now a marker of privilege. So there were all these um, uh, new trends that I was really interested in when I started working on this project. For example, uh, bottled air. Uh, and oxygen bars, which seemed to be all the rage in the 90s and, and early 2000s. Um, and, and now uh, it seems to be even more spectacular insofar as breathing has been uh, sort of incorporated into um, the industry of wellness, right, as this kind of um, uh, byproduct of, of, of the growth and, and, and um, capitalization of new age. Um, so uh, now there is something like what Kelly Conoboy, a reporter, calls um, the breathfulness industry, such that we can take breathing classes that have a therapeutic purpose. Um, and so who has access to breathing classes is, of course, a, a, a very um, uh, basic political economic question, um, which nevertheless reveals a great deal of information about um, who gets to afford um, a free breath or an unencumbered breath. And then when we think about pollution, I mean, processes of pollution can be dated back to, I mean, at the very least, um, the 13th century with um, uh, early industrial expansion. Um, but then what happens in the 1970s is that suddenly there are um, uh, state protocols for um, well, with the purpose of, of containing or, or reducing uh, emissions of, of pollutant, even though they have not always functioned in this way. Um, and so the, the crisis in breathing also coincides with the current shape or the emergence of the current shape of, of the environmentalist movement um, in, in the Western world. Um, and so I'm not saying that any of these processes of pollution, weaponization, and monetization begin in the 1970s, but that it's useful to think of these processes as intensifying in what um, uh, is often called the long 1970s, which is to say the um, inauguration of... Um, this world where neoliberal policies are naturalized and implemented more than any other kind of, of economic or, or political policy. Um, and, and, and the long 1970s is one way of thinking about the fact that um, we're still caught in the financial decisions and the intensification of the financial decisions that, that started to be made um, with particular fervor and vigor in, in that pivotal decade, as Judith Stein calls it. And in your, your answer there, you actually kind of anticipated a little bit my next question, because you mentioned the idea of breathing as something therapeutic. Uh, and you you bring that up several times in the book of taking kind of a, a critical uh, perspective on uh, seeing breathing as a therapeutic uh, or a therapeutic perspective on breathing. So could you talk a little bit about that and how some of the, the works that you analyze in the book uh, give us a different perspective on breathing than a, a therapeutic one? 
Uh-huh, absolutely. So I, I, there was a bookshop.org um, selection around the holidays, I think in 2020, um, of, of trade books that were all about respiration. And, um, you know, when you're working on a project like this one, um, you tend to have tunnel vision. You tend to look, you, you tend to think that the information you'll be able to collect and the information that will be useful uh, will be located in in certain corners of, of the universe and not others. And so um, it really it really struck me when I saw this this uh, spread of books that were being publicized for the holidays uh, in the first year of COVID. That is, um, in order to uh, write to, to to monetize breathing in a in a in a different way. Um, and uh, I like to joke that my book is one of the few books published in in twenty twenty two that do not instruct their readers to, to take a breath or to take a deep breath, mm-hmm. um, right? That, that it's a book that does not engage in, in this kind of uh, therapeutic uh, trade-off with the reader. Um, but I am interested in ways that therapeutic um, approaches to breathing have been critically uh, engaged, uh, especially by minority traditions, which is to say uh, traditions tied to um, artistic genealogies dominated by by people of color or people who were differently disenfranchised, for example, individuals with disabilities, uh, queer trans individuals, and, and so on. So there are two chapters in the book that focus on therapeutic approaches to respiration. Um, one of them is on what I call aesthetic self-medication, so the notation of breathing for therapeutic purposes. And the other one is on what I call feminist breathing. So uh, the ritualization of respiration, mostly in Black feminist healings and indigenous ceremonies. Um, so I can say a few words maybe about uh, each. So in terms of aesthetic self-medication, um, here I'm interested in uh, artists, writers and artists who are working within the very broad category of, of queer life writing and performance. Um, I'm thinking of Sia Conrad, whom I mentioned before, uh, Dodi Bellamy, as well as Bob Flanagan and Sherry Rose. Uh, these are all people who've published works um, where respiration is producing conditions of writing uh, through an experience of crisis. For example, Bob Flanagan lived with cystic fibrosis, and he was known for his extreme body art, extreme performance in a in a masochistic, sadomasochistic register um, that he performed with his partner in life and in art, Sherry Rose. Um, So he was able in those performances to regularize his breathing um, in order to experience a kind of suffering that he found to be exhilarating as opposed to um, debilitating or strictly debilitating um, at least. Um, And then at some point in his life, it became impossible for him to participate in this kind of uh, in this kind of uh, performance. So he started to devote more attention to, to what I call these journals of bad breathing, which are essentially everyday notations of the symptomatology of cystic fibrosis. And they're extremely repetitive. And it turns out that the repetition, the iterative nature of it, has some kind of purpose, um, which is to say that the symptomatology turns into structures like a melody or a joke um, with, you know, a very predictable punchline. And all of these uh, structures afford him some kind of psychic coherence 
uh, through an experience of loss. And it's a loss of, of health, right? A kind of deterioration of his condition, but it's also a loss of bearings and a loss of personality because he really identified as a performance artist and as a masochist. So the question there is, is what kind of relation is he able to develop to his suffering um, when it can no longer be aestheticized in the specific ways that he used to to think of as spectacular and cool and shocking. Um, so that's it for, for aesthetic self-medication. And in terms of the feminist breathing chapter on, on the ritualization of respiration, well, I was really interested in works by um, Tony Kid Mambra um, and Linda Hogan, um, which were um, trying to think about how the ritualization of breathing um, would be helpful in terms of uh, creating the conditions for convergence and for um, congregation uh, in the event of uh, political losses and political setbacks. So there is this narrative in, in feminist history that there is this moment of exhilaration in the 60s and the 70s, what is colloquially called the second wave, and then there are too many losses that take place. For example, the ERA is not ratified. Um, uh, there is a great deal of external opposition. There's infighting in terms of you know, racism, homophobia within the women's movement. And so uh, the kind of vitality or, or fervor that feminist activists brought to the movement uh, becomes unsustainable. And so this is a kind of tale of deflation or, or what Jane Elliott calls declension. Um, and I think that we can tell a different story about what happened to, to feminism in the 1970s and beyond if we look at these minoritarian traditions where the ritualization of respiration is not meant necessarily to recover vitality, but it's meant to... Um, organize uh, the experience of political lows or structure the experience of political lows. And it's a double-edged sword ultimately because what happens through healing is not that people suddenly feel well and, and, and they're invincible. What happens through a, a healing of the kind destroyed, uh, excuse me, dis described in Tony K. Mambra's uh, novel, The Salt Eaters, is that individuals can return to the work of political activism, which is to say they can withstand being hurt again, right? And there's something completely heartbreaking about that. But I think that it's not a coincidence that breathing is the means of, of producing those conditions or generating those conditions because breathing is a way of, of making life out of vulnerability and out of exposure and in many cases, injury and suffering. Okay, and so next I'm gonna kind of take advantage of getting to be the interviewer here to hone in on a bit of your book that's of special interest to me, uh, which is wildfire, uh, because wildfire smoke is one of the, the big threats to breathing in lots of parts of the world today. Mm -hmm. And it makes a few appearances in some of the art that you analyze. So what can your work tell us about wildfire and its relationship to breathing? Okay. Um, yes, this is a great, um, this is a great question. Uh, wildfires have been happening with increased frequency and, and in ways that have been indeed spectacular and, and mediatized. Um, I had been writing for a few years about Rennie Gladman's 
Ravika novels. Those are experimental novels that take place in this fictional city-state called Ravika. And the air in Ravika is clouded by this, this thick yellow smoke. Um, and the poet and writer David Buke has this uh, reading of Glanman's novels as being partly New York novels and partly San Francisco novels. Um, and it was... Uh, scary, sublime, and, and horrifying, right, to, to notice that the air had become yellowish, orange in, in San Francisco a few years ago in, in relation to um, wildfires that had been taking place in the area. Um, so there, there are weird moments when I realized that um, reality was, was catching up to fiction, um, and in, in Ravika, we have characters who gather information about each other by way of of their uh, difficult breathing, right? So, so the idea that breathing would be a primary way for thinking about sociality in a moment of ecological crisis um, that is being speculated by Ravika is also uh, taking place in, in urban spaces and rural spaces um, where the air is, is, is clouded by smoke. Um, there's another place in the book where the question of the wildfire comes up. It's in relation to specific works by Anna Mandietta and Amy Greenfield. Um, and there I'm especially interested in complicating a, um, a set of works in queer theory that, that think of the destructive and productive aspects of fire as inherently queer and therefore uh, available for a kind of uh, pleasurable and promiscuous recuperation. Um, the depiction of a wildfire in a dense piece like Amy Greenfield's Wildfire, where the women are producing the very flames that they're also being engulfed by, um, is pointing to a kind of um, a structure of suffocation or an experience of suffocation that is not so easily redeemable as, as potentially pleasurable and therefore queer. Um, and... So yeah, so these are some of the places in, in, in the book where um, where the respiratory uh, repercussions of, of wildfires are, are being explored with, with particular um, attention. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Yeah. Uh, and so in the, in the book, you draw on a really wide variety of scholars and theorists uh, to help in analyzing your material. Uh, and I was uh, particularly pleased to see you citing uh, Sean Shu uh, because I interviewed them back a year or two ago on this podcast. So it was kind of a fun surprise to see uh, the new guest citing the book that the old guest had come on to talk about. Um, so could you talk about uh, some of the more important scholars that you cite and kind of how their work contributes to yours. Absolutely. I mean, I, I think I can start with, with Sean, uh, who's such an important figure for my thinking, but also who's been an incredible mentor figure um, toward the very end of my PhD and in my, my first years on the tenure track. Um, Sean wrote a book called The Smell of Risk, right, which you inter interviewed um, 
uh, interviewed him about. And what the smell of risk uh, does is offer us an account of the generic life of the olfactory. So um, uh, how our very understanding of aesthetic genre, aesthetic form ought to be informed by um, what Sean calls atmospheric differentiation. Um, and so the concept of atmospheric differentiation as, as one way to give form to, um, um, to the uneven distribution of risk and also to understand its, its aesthetic life, its aesthetic repercussions, that was very central to um, the last few years of, of this project. And, and those are very critical years because they tend to be the moment when you write the introduction and, and, and you pull the threads together and, and you tie them neatly. Um, and, and I should say also that we're actually collaborating on a piece that we wrote a piece that will come out um, eventually, hopefully sooner than later. Um, and we wrote that with uh, Alisa Corinne, who's a, an olfactory artist based in Los Angeles. And that piece is about skunk, which is related to the questions of um, chemical weapons that I mentioned earlier in our conversation. Uh, skunk is this malodorant chemical weapon that's been developed by mostly the Israeli Defense Forces, and it's been used um, against uh, Palestinians. Um, it's also been stockpiled by U.S. police forces, although there are, I believe, no recorded uses of, of skunk against populations uh, on U.S. soil as of yet. Um, and we've been sort of fascinated by the fact that there's a whole industry around skunk and, and that um, its value has increased um, even uh, in, in the absence of, of, of clear, specific, documented uses in, in the U.S. Um, and skunk is also useful to, to think through because um, it's a way of thinking about the role of chemical weapons in crowd dispersal beyond the event of the protest. Um, so skunk uh, instills in, in individuals this foul smell that will stick to the skin for, for multiple weeks. Um, and so there's a kind of process of social ostracization uh, or stigmatization that takes place um, through the duration right, of, of the of, of the smell being perceivable. Um, so that's it for, you know, my, my little fan account of, of, uh, Sean's work and having worked with Sean. Um, and, you know, uh, hopefully it's received as a way to, to express my gratitude because it, it very much abounds. Um, there are other work, other authors, excuse me, who've been really critical to, to the genesis of this project and continue to inspire me as I, as I think about, about new work. Uh, the environmental humanities, you know, tend to be very uh, dutiful uh, insofar as they expect their objects, works of literature, works of cinema, to uh, impart in spectators or readers particular civic virtues. Um, and uh, that means that uh, in order for an object to be interesting in the environmental humanities, it often needs to be good or be considered good, right? It has to 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 be reparative in and of itself, as opposed to inviting itself to a reparative reading, uh, if we put it in those kind of Sedwickian terms. Um, and scholars like uh, Nicole Seamer uh, and Sarah, P um, Sarah McFarland Taylor have been uh, very helpful in in, in thinking about, um, uh, about 
the wider range of reactions that an encounter with equal art might produce. Um, and I find that especially helpful to keep in mind when we're talking about respiration, because if we keep, um, if, if we take seriously the idea that the aesthetics of breathing can be both invigorating or debilitating, or is often at once invigorating and debilitating, then we cannot overstate, we shouldn't overstate the capacity of, of readers and spectators to go out into the world and just, and then just change it through sheer force of will, right? Like we can't overestimate the, the pedagogical value of, of the aesthetics of breathing. And so part of what this project is interested in, in relation to the environmental humanities and, and, and part of what scholars like, like Seymour and Taylor make possible is a way of thinking about um, aesthetic responses to equal art that is open to reactions like uh, exhaustion or even titillation um, or confusion, right? And those are reactions that might not be so easily recuperable into a kind of pedagogical process. Yeah, so then another, um, another interesting thing that you talk about is this idea of a, a right to breathe that a lot of people were talking about in the context of things like COVID, but you're kind of a little critical of that idea and you contrast it with your own call for uh, quote, benign respiratory variations. So can you talk a bit about the, the difference between those, those ideas and, and why you want to go past this right to breathe? Mm -hmm. Well, the right to breathe as a, as a framework was popularized by Akila Memembe, who wrote this um, op-ed uh, around the first few months of the COVID-19 pandemic, um, and also in response to um, the calls for racial justice and the demonstrations and mobilizations against the institutions orchestrating anti-Black violence. Um, and I mean, I agree with the sentiment and I, I, I share the sentiment, uh, which is to say that I would like to reduce the strain uh, on the breathing of of differently marginalized individuals. And I, and I do believe that the role of the policy or the role of the social should be to, to do that. Um, but I, maybe because of my, um, uh, my sort of dogmatic education in, in political science, like I, I've, I've, I've been scarred for life by rights-based politics. And I, I, I don't think that rights-based politics are the most useful way of thinking about a process that is, um, so relational and so social as, as respiration, as breathing. Um, and so I tend to think a little bit more through um, networks of mutual care, um, networks of grassroots justice as well. And the idea of the benign respiratory variation um, was a way to try to move toward a more radical social theory of um of, of what it means to, to try to breathe better and breathe differently together. Um, the concept of the benign respiratory variation is a reference to Gail Rubin's idea of the benign sexual variation. And Gail Rubin was writing in the 80s and thinking about the unprecedented visibility and repression of, of political behavior, um, such that 
there was this sort of anti-sex moral panic, which feels extremely immediate to us uh, existing in, in the present. Um, and what Rubin was saying is that a radical theory of sexuality needs a concept of benign sexual variation. So it needs to have an account of the, uh, I would say, okayness, but also ultimately the social good of there being deviations from certain social norms if these deviations do not have um, victims, right? If, if, if the crimes are indeed victimless. Um, and I thought it was a useful way of thinking about, about respiration, even though I don't endorse this kind of one-to-one analogy between respiration and sex. Um, there is a concept of sex in the book, right? It's not something that's absorbed into, into respiration as this other more capacious or more porous kind of mode of relation. Um, but I do think, again, it's useful to think about benign variation with respiration because, you know, what we want as individuals, I believe, and this is a proposition, not a, 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 a claim, but what we want, I think, is not to never experience breathlessness, but it's to experience the breathlessness that we can bear or the breathlessness that we find vivifying as opposed to life-threatening, right, or life-extinguishing. So, you know, there are many situations that might involve breathlessness or that might involve interruptions in respiration that are that are desirable. One of them might be the uh, gasp that you make when you encounter a work of art that really overcomes you. Um, in queer theory, sex is a place where one gets to think about non-sovereignty, about the encounter with alterity, um, about being beside oneself or outside of oneself, right? Ecstasis and, and ecstasy. Um, and, and these moments can also be breathless. So I do think it's helpful to, to think of a project of social betterment as having to do with a certain intervention in respiration, but I don't think it's necessarily useful to root that project in, you know, making breathing easy and flowy for everyone, because it does not account for the fact that certain interruptions or variations in breathing can actually be um, can actually be something that should be valorized um, and and that people should be able to have access to. And so, one of the cases I, I think about in order to make sense of the idea of the benign respiratory variation is an excerpt from Tricia Lowe's excellent uh, book of nonfiction, Socialist Realism where she recounts going to a BDSM um, workshop where she is learning about waterboarding. And she, in this context, gets to be waterboarded by um, a peer. Um, and this is done uh, under um, extensive supervision. And Lowe recounts the experience of feeling the, the water droplets uh, sort of fall into her nostrils. And, and she is describing the kind of uh, ex- experience of, of pleasurable sedation that, that comes with that for her. And then suddenly the, the damp cloth that is placed over her face that's supposed to keep her from breathing is lifted um, in a way that she does not expect. And so she writes about being surprised, right? And so she asks, why was the why was the cloth lifted so early in the exercise? And then the person who's running the workshop says to her that um, uh, the cloth had to be lifted because um, 
Trisha Lowe was really good at holding her breath. Um, and she was good at holding her breath because she had been trained in synchronous swimming, synchronized swimming, excuse me, as a, as a child. Um, so she was really good at breath holding. And so the person running the workshop said, we need to be able to see you combat, right, the, um, the, 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 the water drops in order to know that you're still responsive and that you might indeed be experiencing pleasure because if you're just calm, there's no way for us to know if you're okay or if you're on your way toward permanent brain damage or even death. And what I find interesting in this moment is that the person running the workshop is abiding by a concept of benign sexual variation um, by... Uh, or I should say that the workshop itself is abiding by a concept of benign sexual variation because, you know, Trisha consented to, to being a subject in, in this kind of concept, context and consent is a really important criterion for the benign sexual variation. But there's this additional criterion here, which is benign respiratory variation, which is to say that the person running the workshop notices that breathing is telling something that... Uh, consent wasn't telling, right? Which is that Trisha Lowe has certain physical abilities that make it dangerous for her to participate in this kind of activity. And so this kind of attunement to the subject's respiration allowed for a relation of care and for a, a, a more a safer environment, right? For all the individuals involved in, in this kind of ritual. And so this is the, the kind of analogy or, 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 or allegory that I that I offer in order to think about the kinds of contexts where um, an attunement to respiration and an attunement to uh, the ways people are or are not abiding by uh, pleasurable scripts of breathlessness is uh, is inducing uh, certain practices of, of care and attention. Yeah, so shifting gears a bit now, I want to ask about the visual design of the book itself, uh, because you've got this cover that has this image of kind of yellow smoke on it, and then your name and the title are written in these, it's kind of like concentric circles or uh, kind of pattern around it, and then the table of contents is sort of swirling or askew like that as well. Uh, so how did you make the decisions about the, the visual design of the book and how does it tie into the content of what you're writing? Well, I have to give full credit to Courtney Lee Richardson, who is uh, a designer at Duke University Press and um, did a fantastic job on the design of the book uh, on the cover, but also the, in, in, uh, the design of the interior of, of the book. Um, and I'm immensely grateful to, to the work that she's done. So I, I try to uh, shout her name whenever I can, um, uh, again, to express my, my immense gratitude. Um, and uh, I mean, so I think she might be in a better position to, to answer some of these questions. But I, in my author questionnaire, um, I did give a kind of synopsis or a precis of, of what I had in mind for the cover. And um, I was hoping not to feature a work of installation art because installation art had been featured in, in ways that were really beautiful and really striking in, in other works on air and atmosphere and smell. Um, and I, I didn't want to, to, to sort of copy that approach. Um, and I, I was hoping for something quite um, uh, abstract um, and also non-representational. 
because there are very few examples of, of breeding aesthetics um, uh, in the book that are that are sort of straightforwardly about like watching people breathe, right? Like there, there often is a, a, a work of mediation here that is, that is a lot more complicated. So I wanted to honor that and, and not offer, a, you know, a kind of straightforward representation where like somebody takes a deep breath. Um, um, yeah, that, that did not seem to, to match the, the ethos of the book. Um, and the synopsis that I offered was, was a kind of a set of, quotes from Rennie Gladman's Ravica books um, that take place in this fictional city-state where the air, as I mentioned earlier, is, is clouded by this thick yellow smog. Um, and so I was hoping that the that the conditions of, of Ravica could be sort of rec- rep- replicated as the conditions of, of the book and, and the conditions through which inco- viewers or, or readers, I should say, would encounter the, the content, the material. Um, and, and one thing I really enjoy about about the cover design, um, and again, this is entirely Courtney's work, um, is that the way that the title and my name or position is reminiscent of uh, a radioactive symbol. Um, and so already there's something quite alluring about this sort of fluorescent yellow uh, smoke, but there is um, uh, a signal of danger that uh, you perceive um, you perceive very very quickly. I also really enjoy the fact that the text is printed in a way that is not uh, that does not um, uh, th- that the contrast I should say between the background and the text is not so stark um, because you sort of have to to look closely in, in order to read. And, and there's something about the aesthetics of breathing that demands this really sustained attention that is also being replicated here in, in how the book itself is, is, is presented. Yeah. So we're moving toward the end of our time. So I wanted to give you an opportunity to give a, a shout out or a thank you to anyone whose help was important to you as you were writing the book. Oh, yes. <laughs> well, the acknowledgements are, are pretty uh, extensive in that regard. Um, but there are a few people at Duke University Press um, I really want to thank. Uh, my editor, Joshua guterman uh was a champion of the book from, from the very beginning and, and um, gave me really, really, really sharp notes uh, throughout the process. And, and um, Joshua expressed care in the way that I like care to be expressed, which is through very rigorous and sustained engagement. Um, and Ken Wissaker was also an early advocate of the book. Um, he's observed the evolution of the project uh, since June of 2018. So I'm, I'm really immensely uh, grateful for, for his editorial work um, and his guidance uh, throughout the process. Um, and I mean, I, I was on this panel, on this roundtable with other authors of a recently published book last Friday um, at the Association for the Study of the Arts of the Present. And uh, Marquise Bay, who was one of the authors on the roundtable, asked us what it was like, what, what the experience was like physically for us to, to write these books. And, um, and I had not asked myself the question explicitly, um, but the only answer that came to mind in that moment is that uh, 
one of the experiences of the of the writing process was one of grief. Um, a few years ago, when I started working on this project, I was really adamant about countering this predominant vitalism in uh, environmentalism and, and eco-criticism, like this idea that there's a kind of vibrancy to, to all matter such that anything can be sort of recuperated into, into, um, in, into a good or, or, or a plus or, or a benefit. Um, and I was really interested in, in, um, confronting the kind of incommensurable morbidity that respiration confronts us with if if we're willing to to pay attention to that and um so it's a it's a book of 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 death and it's a book of that is morbid insofar as it's really relentlessly oriented toward death even the last chapter is on depictions of and, and discourses mostly discourses of the last breath in end of life documentary feature films and then i lost people who were very dear to me in the last few years of, of the writing process. I lost both my grandmothers and, and one of my grandmothers I I can credit for um, for my curiosity and, and for my my desire to be in and, and learn from the world. Um, and I also lost my my advisor, um, Lauren Berland, who was I think the most important person uh, in the genesis of this book. Um, and it's strange because I received uh, a copy of Lauren's new and probably last book uh, yesterday in the mail. So I just started reading it. Um, but it, to me, it's, it's impossible not to mention Lauren's um, important contributions to, to, to this project. Um, and, and also it's impossible not to mention the very strange feelings that emerge as as these two books are, are entering the world at the same time and and as I I, I I want to share my excitement my reflex is always to, to text Lauren about about developments in the publication of the book and, and then I, I remember um, that that Lauren is no longer with us so um, uh, so I I hope that um, I hope that the book does justice to our, our many conversations over over the past decade. Okay, and then finally, uh, you touched on this earlier, but now is your chance to give us a little more detail about what you're working on next. Yes, of course. Um, so I'm working on two books right now. Um, one of them is uh, further along than the other. It's a collaborative book with Steven Swarbrick, who himself is publishing a book this year um, called The Environmental Unconscious at Minnesota, and it is a spectacular book. I highly recommend that everyone pre-order it. Um, and the book that we're writing together is called Negative Life, The Cinema of Extinction. And what it tries to do is it tries to um, make queer theories of negativity and non-sovereignty responsive to the pressures of life under climate crisis. And specifically, we're interested in this kind of contradiction in the present where there's a paradox between individual survival and species longevity. So if to live longer is to generate waste, it's also, at least theoretically speaking, to lay waste to the worlds that we might wish to protect, right? So there's a kind of self-contradiction in conceptions of life and conceptions of futurity and reproduction that ought to be taken seriously in the context of climate crisis and that we um, 
want to take seriously also as um, as uh, as as people who are very devoted to a certain tradition that is that is an antisocial tradition in in queer theory. Um, uh, so our, our claim here is that, well, negative life, our, our central concept is, is about the formalization and, 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 and representation by film um, of, of life's heightened paradoxes under climate crisis. And, and the idea is that encounters with negative life are precipitated by this hyper-contemporary corpus that we call the cinema of extinction. And it includes films like uh, Bhopal Express, Minari, uh, The Wall, uh, Lamb, as well as Fursgal. And what these uh, films have in common is that they um, prevent spectators and characters alike from accessing the ethical realm of multi-species entanglement or enmeshment that eco-criticism so often adopts and accepts as the horizon of politics and the horizon of ethics. Um, so uh, instead of doing that, right, what it does is it confront um, characters and spectators with with the kind of void or or the irrecoverable loss um, that that it identifies as as symptomatic of the present. So part of what this book is trying to do is it's trying to make sense of a series of films for which eco criticism does not yet have a vocabulary, which is to say that the films do not, cannot match or be incorporated into the critical apparatus of, of eco-criticism, which is, which is so um, devoted to um, uh, positing a horizon where it is possible to exist in, in, in harmonious and, and ethical multi-species relations. Um, so that's the, primary book on which I'm focused at the moment, but as we're finishing it, um, we're finishing our draft, I'm also starting to work on another project, which is a solo book called The Art of Environmental Inaction, which I, I mentioned I spoiled earlier. Um, and this book has two objectives. The first one is to detach environmentalism from this dichotomy between harmful and beneficial actions that locks climate futures into a paradigm of human management. Uh, probably the the most obvious iteration of this uh, paradigm would be um, the tech rhetoric of innovation, which tells us that the only possible response to a destructive gesture is a restorative gesture through innovation, right? As opposed to the eradication of the conditions that made destruction possible in the first place. So we're caught in this kind of cycle where um, we need to accrete actions in order to um, try to overcome destruction. And then the second aim is to loosen liberal individualism's hold on eco-criticism. As I briefly touched on earlier, eco-criticism tends to assess the aesthetic and moral value of its objects based on their ability to rouse in spectators and readers particular emotions. And by conflating aesthetic experience, which is to say the experience of a work of literature or work of cinema with moral education, eco-criticism might both overstate and underestimate aesthetics. Um, it overestimates aesthetics insofar as um, it uh, um, offers this kind of leap of faith that allows us always to understand how encountering a work of art will have immediate repercussions on 
people's attitudes and people's behaviors, right? It, it gives us faith in that idea and it underestimates what aesthetics can do because it narrows down aesthetic experience to very recognizable um, effects such as the acquisition or the transmission, I should say, of, say, liberal or conservative attitudes. So the gambit of this book is that in order to develop a non-managerial environmentalism and an illiberal eco-criticism, we need to produce a political concept of inaction. And of course, I'm not endorsing uh, climate nihilism or, or apathy. Um, actually, what I call inaction or what I call this concept of inaction aligns itself with a variety of radical traditions that have predicated environmental futures or planetary futures on uh, downsizing uh, the infrastructures of life. For example, Sylvia Winter's anti-colonial and black feminist critique of destructive humanity or man, as she, as she calls that figure. Um, also decolonial movements like, like degrowth and a variety of anti-capitalist traditions from ludism to ecocentrism to, um, to degrowth. I think I, I meant to say land back in relation to decolonial movements and, and, and now degrowth in relation to um, anti-capitalist movements. Um, so for instance, right now I'm working on, on this piece on ecoterrorism, which poses an interesting problem for action because ecoterrorism is a direct action, but it's an action that is posed in the name of preventing further actions. Um, and here I'm especially looking at um, a pair of absurdist comedies, uh, Nelsing's novel, The Wall Creeper, and the Icelandic film, Woman at War. And I'm, I'm interested in how the absurdity of the film is mimicking or is reproducing um, the kind of semiotic crisis or crisis of meaning around action that is being um, activated or precipitated by, by eco-terrorism itself. Um, so those are the two main projects on which I'm, I'm going to be devoting most of my energies in the years ahead. All right. Well, we'll be looking forward to both of those projects. Uh, so thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, thanks to you. And, and, uh, Thank you for your questions. This has been a conversation with Jean-Thomas Trombly, author of Breathing Aesthetics, published this year by Duke University Press.